after looking at the data, wrestling with it, being engaged in public debates with some of the, the, the greatest skeptical minds out there, um, I'm convinced more than ever that the evidence points very decisively to the historical event of Jesus being raised from the dead. This is perhaps our most consequential episode of Can I Trust the Bible we've ever done. Are the words, the, the actual words in our modern Bible reliable? Can we trust that this Bible is accurate? Are these words the true original words from the original authors 2,000 years ago. The person who has literally written the book on this matter is a professor at Houston Christian University, Dr. Mike Lycona. He is a dear friend of mine. Mike, my brother, how we doing? Hey, Raj, great to be with you, my friend. All right, Michael, let's go macro and then go micro, because I want to get into the nitty-gritty details, but let's start off with the big picture. We have the Mike Lacona on this channel. Is the Bible trustworthy? Yes. Perfect. Yes. And that's the end of the show. Thanks for watching. It's been great. No, I'm just kidding. So why, why do you say that? Well, I think, first of all, we have to define what we mean by the term trustworthy, right? Because some people might understand that term differently than others. And this is where genre comes into the picture as well. Um, and what kind of accuracy should we, or precision, should we expect? So the way I like to describe it is, you know, for those of us who are married, uh, have been married for any length of time, we know the difference between the guy version of the story and the girl <laughs> version of the story, right? Right. So girls like details. And of course, I'm stereotyping here. There's a lot of exceptions. But for the most part, women like details. They like lots of details. They want to know what happened, where it happened, why it happened, how it happened, who was there, what they were doing, what they were saying, what they were wearing. Um, what they were thinking and how they were feeling. <laughs> you know, guys, on the other hand, um, we, we just want to get the bottom line. The game's coming on in five minutes, right? Just give me the gist of what happened. Um, I don't need a lot of unnecessary details in there. So it's not a matter of, uh, well, so for us guys, what we'll do a lot of times is we might bend the details a little bit, uh, mm. adjust things. So we don't have to give a 10 minute background explanation of what's going on because the person we're listening to does or talking uh, to doesn't want to hear all that. So we may bend the details a little bit to give the gist of what happened to get to the main mm. point quicker. Um, so we don't consider that to be corrupting truth or trying to deceive a person. It's, it's a matter of um, just our objective. So I like to say that the Gospel of Mark gives us the girl version of the story on many cases, but Matthew uh, and Luke, but especially Matthew, will give us the guy version of the story. So is Matthew trustworthy? Yes. Um, but we have to understand what we mean by trustworthy mm. in that sense. Well, let me read a couple of scriptures, and then we'll get into it. So let me start with 1 Peter 3.15, which says, in part, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So I hope today we can equip people with that reason, or at least give them confidence. But then this, this one is, I think, maybe the thesis of our discussion here, which is from Proverbs 30, just simply five. Every word of God is flawless. 
He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So Mike, flawless. What does that word mean to you? And is that accurate? Well, I think you, boy, I don't want to sound like some of these uh, Ivy League presidents who used context in a terrible sense of this this way. But I do think we're, you got to look at context and so in terms of genre, right? Mm. So when the psalmist says that God is sleeping, we we don't say that that is true in a literal sense. In, in Revelation chapter 12, when it talks about a great red seven-headed dragon whose tail is going to sl- sweep a third of the stars of heaven to the earth, we, we shouldn't think of that as a space monster flying around in the cosmos. It is a metaphor. Um, or when the psalmist says that he is rejoicing. He will rejoice when they take and slam the heads of babies against the the walls to to kill them, that he will rejoice at that. Um, Well, we don't necessarily say that that is God that is saying that. Um, And how do we reconcile with that being uh, Scripture? Well, it's talking about how you know, someone who's under the persecution of their enemies right now, the Israelites being persecuted, enslaved, they're they're going to rejoice at this. But does that mean that God rejoices mm. at that? I don't think so. So it's, it's not necessarily um, a simple matter that we're talking about here. It's got to be carefully nuanced. So I do think that Scripture is divinely inspired. I do think that scripture is the inerrant word of God, but we do have to have caveats or more clarifications of what we mean by that. Beautiful, beautiful. So we're going to go into the micro in just a second, but and, and our, our discussion's mainly going to going to you know rest in the New Testament. But let's just look at the Old Testament for just a second, because actually the place that you and I first met was in Israel. Uh, which was a fun trip to be on. You know, I, I've, I've led a lot of these trips to Israel, and I've, I've had this discussion before. That usually it's like a Christian influencer, it's some Instagrammer, it's some photographer, it's some musician. And here suddenly I'm co-leading this trip with, I think, Josh or Sammy, and all of a sudden I'm around this group of apologists. You, Sean McDowell, Leighton Flowers, uh, Mark Middleberg, all these brilliant minds, and Dr. William Lane Craig. And suddenly I'm like, you know, I, I can't just bro out right now. I have to be on my A game because these people know exactly uh, all the details. So I, I almost say I was a little nervous, but I was making sure that I was uh, doing my homework every time I opened my mouth for you guys. Uh, but if there's a, is there one thing about that trip that stood out to you? Again, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna touch on the New Testament mainly, but is there something about that trip and the Old Testament and, and, and being in the land of Israel that really impacted you? Well, it was fun. It, honestly, I'm not just saying this to tickle your ears here, but it was fun meeting you and, and several of the other people there and develop friendships. Um, yeah, that, that was my first time in Israel. And um, so it was pretty neat. I was a little disappointed in old, old city Jerusalem just mm. because it was so kind of touristy. And it just I like, you know, as one who has really spent a lot of time studying the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I was most looking forward to visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they think the tomb of Jesus probably is. And I felt like, thought like, wow, I'm going to feel so nostalgic, so nostalgic when I'm there. And I didn't, I didn't feel anything because it was so 
the church was there. It was so built up. I didn't get any sense of, of this being the place. That doesn't mean that it's not. I just didn't have it. What I really probably enjoyed more than anything else in terms of the places where it was on the Sea of Galilee and visiting Capernaum, where Jesus spent a lot of his time. It was his headquarters. Um, that was cool. And it was uh, the Sea of Galilee isn't so built up. So you kind of get the sense that that probably looked a lot like this in the first century. Yeah, I, I totally know what you're talking about when it comes to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre feeling like it's just it's it's too much for a lot of people. That's why we go to the Garden Tomb. Is it the place? We're not going to get into that right now. But I actually like going to um, some off the path places that to me just illuminate scripture. So let me give you one example from the Old Testament, and then we'll hop into the New Testament and get into the meat of our discussion. So for me, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are like the coolest thing ever, right? That basically proves that the Bible, at least the Old Testament, hasn't changed in thousands of years. That to me is amazing. But when you're walking around the old city of Jerusalem, you'll see these things that you can just totally walk by and have no idea that these things exist. And one of them is an example is this little place in the old city of Jerusalem. It's in the Jewish quarter, and they have excavated this wall built by King Hezekiah to keep out the Assyrians. And then they have this verse on top of it, and it's Isaiah 22.10. And it's this verse that you've probably read if you read the, the book of Isaiah, and it's such an obscure verse. Does this verse mean anything? Is this verse accurate? Why is this verse in here? It seems so pointless. I, it, it, this can't be true. But then when you're there and you realize that Isaiah was writing about very real things, very tangible, very human things. And I think that's one of the disarming and uncomfortable things about going to Israel is that it's so real. It's so human. It's so nitty gritty. Um, and this, so this verse just blew my mind. So if you look at this wall, this ancient wall built by King Hezekiah, and you read this verse. So here's the verse. You have counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down the houses to strengthen the wall. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you look at this wall that was built 2,700 years ago, you can see little houses attached to the wall that were torn down to build that wall. And suddenly you're looking at Isaiah, reading it and thinking, he was probably looking at this exact same thing when he wrote that. And to me, knowing that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Deuteronomy, these talk about real places real people, real stories. And so to me, when I want to give you, the, the viewer, my friend here, uh, encouragement, the Old Testament to me, the more, I've been there 30 times. It's so real and tangible. But Mike, we're talking about the New Testament today, and you've actually written an entire book. Why are there differences in the gospel? Why are there differences in the gospel? So Mike, why are there differences in the gospel? <laughs> well, there are many uh, different reasons we, we could look at, but I think... Uh, one, you're looking at some of the writers are writing from different perspectives. Um, and so they're seeing things through different lenses. But I think for the most part, the reason, reason we have differences in the Gospels are something we, we'd call compositional devices. And these would be uh, techniques that many of which we use in our, even today in our everyday ordinary uh, communications, conversations with one another. So uh, like, like for example, you might say at some point, hey, I was in Israel with Mike Lacona. And that's true. But there were other people there with us as well. You just mm -hmm. didn't mention them because 
uh, I mean, you mentioned some a few moments ago, William Lane Craig, Mark Middleberg, some of uh, the others, Mary Jo Sharp. Um, <clears throat> but there were some you didn't mention. It doesn't mean that they weren't there. It's just you were putting your focus, shining your spotlight on certain individuals. And this is a very common technique in ancient literature. Very common. In fact, when I was looking through Plutarch's lives, Plutarch is widely considered to be antiquity's greatest biographer. And he wrote toward the end of the, the first century and at the beginning of the second century. And a lot of what we know about the ancient world comes from Plutarch. Um, and when you compare how he tells the same story in multiple of the biographies he writes, because he's writing about uh, some of the same figures like Julius Caesar and Antony and Brutus and uh, Cicero and uh, Pompey. Uh, so he's going to tell the same story uh, in multiple biographies. They're called lives back then. Um, so, but he tells the same story differently. So it's not like, uh, you know, you have different people telling the same uh, same story. It's the same author telling the same story using the same sources, many times writing those stories simultaneously, and differences come up. Hmm. And one of those is this spotlighting that's going on where he knows other people are involved, but he's focusing on a single individual. Well, we find this going on in the Gospels as well. I'll just give you a couple examples right in the resurrection narratives. So Matthew and Mark mention one angel at the tomb. Luke and John mention two angels. Well, was there one or were there two? Well, it's very conceivable here that uh, Mark and Matthew are mentioning only the angel who's announcing that Jesus was raised. Um, and then who comes to the tomb? Uh, John reports Mary Magdalene, whereas the other Gospels report multiple women coming to the tomb. Well, which one is correct? Well, I think that John is shining his spotlight on Mary. Why? Because she runs back and tells Peter and the beloved disciple they have taken the Lord and we don't know where they've laid him. That sounds like multiple women. And then John reports that the beloved disciple and Peter run to the tomb and found it as Mary had said. Luke reports that Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it as the women had said. Well, which one is it? Well, it's really interesting. Just 12 verses later in Luke, Jesus is appearing to the Emmaus disciples. Luke reports that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he say, says to them, why the long faces, guys? And they say, well, you're the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened. And Jesus plays with them. No, what? <laughs> and um, so they say, well, you know, there's Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah, but they crucified him on Friday. And our, our women went to the tomb this morning and they came back and reported that they saw angels who said he'd been raised from the dead. And so some of our own went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, well, wait a minute, Luke, just 12 verses later, you only mentioned Peter. That's right. But here you said some of our own. Yeah. And so what? Well, you contradicted yourself. No, I said, Peter, I know that obviously I know others are present, but I just mentioned Peter. He's the lead apostle. Um, or maybe it's from Peter. He got he got the eyewitness testimony about this story. Who knows? But it's spotlighting. It's not a contradiction. So we find th this happening three times in the resurrection narratives alone. So that's just one compositional device. There are numerous other ones that I could mention. Uh, we could talk about if you wanted. Um, but I don't think these are contradictions. I mean, certainly surface discrepancies, 
but they're there for a reason, a very understandable reason and things that we do every day today. So half of my library are books written by you. Uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus is like this big. I don't know if you can see my hands and it, it takes up half of my bookshelf. And I have, I have just thoroughly enjoyed your transparency, your honesty, um, and, and just your diligence in, in, in going down these paths. And so, you know, I think for some people, I heard you put it in a video where for some people, and might be my friend here watching this video right now, people want the Bible to be a photograph, right? They want it to be stamped. This is exactly what happened. This is exactly how, and, and that, according to you, isn't exactly how the New Testament is written. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, no one in antiquity wanted it that way. Well, I shouldn't say no one, but that's not generally how they wanted things written. Um, I had an attorney come up to me once after lecturing on differences in the Gospels, and he said, but but I don't want it that way. I, I don't want the authors to use uh, compositional devices. Um, I don't want them to arrange their biographies of Jesus uh, and sometimes using an uh, artistic flair to it. I, I want to see it like a legal transcript of uh, a transcript of a legal deposition. And I said, well, yeah, that'd be nice. But they weren't lawyers writing and they weren't taking legal depositions. Um, even biographies today and histories today don't set out to report things with the accuracy or precision of a legal transcript. You're talking about the wrong genre. And back then there was only one, by, uh, one historian who reported things as we do today. We appreciate more precision today. We're after more precision today than they were in the first century. And there was only one ancient historian who wrote like we write today. His name was Asconius. Hmm. Now probably you've never heard of him. And the reason being is because no one really valued his writings like um, they did the others because they weren't looking for that kind of precision like we do today. They wanted things presented um, in a, a kind of artistic manner. Mm. So like, for example, when you remember when we were there, um, we went to a place where it's thought that Jesus may have given the Sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. and I recited G the Sermon on the Mount from memory. I remember that. That was special. That, that was also pretty cool that you had that whole thing memorized. And, you know, I looked at that, Raj, and it's like, I know Jesus did not give the sermon there. <laughs> and the reason being is because, you know, there was a slight wind blowing, and, you know, that a recording of that is on our YouTube channel. And, and you can hear, as soon as I just turn in a little different direction, you can hardly hear me. And it's like, that's people that were pretty close to me. Now, what it would have had to have been, like if it is at the bottom of a hill and people are sitting on the hill, and if that go, the slope that's going up is arranged at, on a pretty you know, large hill, but it's arranged kind of like in an amphitheater kind of thing, well, now the acoustics are going to work really well. So why is it, you know, you've got Matthew has Jesus at the top of the mount, given the sermon, but Luke has it at the bottom. He comes down, and so scholars refer to it as the Sermon on the Plain. Now, some might say, well, he gave it at the top, then he came down and gave it at the bottom. Um, but no, you read the accounts carefully, and that's not what happened. 
most scholars, I think, are correct when they say that Matthew uh, displaced it, uh, the, the location to the top. He transplanted the location at the top. Why? Because he's trying to show Jesus as a type of new Moses, a new Moses, where Moses received the law at the top of, of the mountain. Jesus is now giving it and interpreting it for us, a deeper meaning of the law at the top mm. of the mount. So that's why he says, you have heard that the ancients were told, um, thou shalt not kill, and whoever kills will be guilty before the court. But I say to you, or you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He is interpreting the law now. It's not just a matter of going through the motions. It is a matter God wants us pure on the inside. And if you're pure on the inside, the outside is not going to sin. Well, does that, does that bother you that they don't match up like that? No. Once I understood that that's what the ancient authors were doing. Plutarch does it as well. The other ancient biographers do it as well. And so we've got to recognize that this is part of genre. They were allowed these kinds of, of liberties when they were writing. Does that mean that Jesus didn't give the Sermon on the Mount? Well, of course not. Does it mean that his teachings uh, uh, were different? No. It, but Matthew changes the location of it in order to make a nice little theological point. He does the same thing with the genealogy of Jesus. And when we try to harmonize the two genealogies, it doesn't work. But when we recognize that Matthew has arranged his genealogy in an artistic manner in order to emphasize that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, it's like, wow. Now, was Jesus the Messiah apart from that? Yes. But what Matthew wants to arrange it in this artistic manner to make the point clearer mm. to his Jewish readers who would not have minded that at all. Mm. So, Raj, the bottom line is when we look at the Gospels and read them through the lens of, a, of, of the 21st century, um, we're going to have some difficulties. But when we adjust our lens to view the Gospels through a first century biography, a whole lot more comes into focus. That is very, very helpful um, and super informative, and uh, I really think that's going to bless people that are watching this that have had those questions. Uh, but if you don't mind, in our remaining time, I'm going to I'm going to do a little bit of rapid fire questions because I mean we could we could talk for days, and and we would just be scratching the surface of all that Dr. Lycona uh, can can offer us. But let me let me talk about John seven fifty three through John 8, 11. I think this is something that I've you know, struggled with. If you read in my, this Bible, it says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses. Hey, uh, Mike, help me out. If some ancient manuscripts don't have this, and by the way, the, the story is the very famous story. You know, Jesus draws a line in the sand, let the person without sin cast the first stone. Did did that actually happen? What, what, what is the Bible footnotes trying to tell me here? That's a great question. So first of all, we asked the question, was this in the originals? Um, and if it was not, then 
we, we shouldn't recognize it as being canonical or uh, divinely inspired, this story, right? It was something that would have been added later on. So um, we can recognize that just like you would the end of Mark, chapter 16, verses exactly. 9 through 20, where they're picking up snakes and drinking poison. You know, don't do this at home, right? <laughs> because those verses were added in the second century, probably. Um, so that... It, that's fine if we recognize that was later added. We put brackets around it and we recognize that and we don't revere that necessarily as God's word. I think that's the wise thing to do. Now, uh, probably the thing about the woman caught in adultery in, in those verses you mentioned that probably was not in, in the original uh, Gospel of John. That doesn't necessarily mean the event did not occur. It could, uh, you know, John writes at the end, there were many other things that Jesus did, right, that that he didn't include. Um, and we would expect that, you know, you're not going to summarize a person's life in something that can be read in just a few hours. You're not even going to be able to summarize what a person did in their one and a half to three year ministry in something that you could read in, in just a few hours. So we can expect that there are going to be some other stories. That said, is this an authentic recollection of an act of Jesus? This is something we just cannot answer. Some would say, some scholars say yes, and that's why some scribe put it in later on and just added it in there because they knew it was an authentic story of Jesus that didn't make it into one of the Gospels, and they wanted it there. Um, that's a possibility. Um, I wouldn't die for that possibility. I'd like to think it's authentic, but we just can't know. Hmm. Okay, so if a skeptic is watching this, um, and one, again, one of the things I really appreciate about your channel, about your debates, about your books, is that maybe to an uncomfortable level, you're honest. You're like, hey, this is, I'm, 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 I'm confident in saying this. Is this one billion percent accurate? Mm, I don't know. And I think that's that like murky gray area is a little uncomfortable for some people. But I think what's so beautiful about what you do is you you give people confidence that this is the Word of God, this is the reliable Word of God, and then if you just change your focus, uh, change how you see it, perceive it, then you can see that all, all these things, if not all these things, kind of line up. But I think um, let's just let's just do some more questions where it's like, okay, famously, you know, one of your uh, debate foes, Bart Ehrman, if you want to call him that. Um, has pointed out that there seems to be, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of little, I guess you would call them minor errors or little missteps. What, what is his accusation and why do you think it doesn't matter as much as he might lead on to? Well, he's referring to textual variants in the New Testament text because there are so many different manuscripts. There are thousands of them. Of the Greek manuscripts alone, we're probably looking at about 5,500. Sometimes the, the number's gotten up to about 5,800, but an expert in this, Dan Wallace, has said now they're discovering that a lot of these um, belong to the same manuscript. So he estimates there's around 5,500 as of the year 2023. And, and before you answer that, is that a lot? Is that is that something we should have confidence in? Yeah. Uh, to give you an idea, you know, um, what we're looking at, Tacitus is considered to be the greatest ancient Roman historian. Um, and for his Annals of Rome, we only have two manuscripts. No kidding. Uh, one manuscript, I think book uh, books one through six, and another manuscript books 11 through 
the remainder. Um, and so that's one manuscript for each of those sections. And those manuscripts are dated to, I believe it's the 11th century. So Tacitus is writing in the early second century. So we're talking about 900 years removed from each of those manuscripts, and we only have one for each of those sections. Um, so when we talk about 5,500 approximately, now, of course, they're not all of the entire New Testament. Some are just little fragments. But, I mean, you've got um, uh, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Alexandrinus, um, Sinaiticus, I'm sorry, uh, Sinaiticus and um, Vaticanus from the 4th century, the entire New Testament. So now we're talking only 300 years removed, and you have two manuscripts of the entire New Testament. Wow. So, um, yeah, we've got a wealth. Um, when I was doing my work on Plutarch, I'm looking at some of the manuscripts uh, that are available. Um, yeah, I mean, you might have 50 manuscripts, um, and most of them are dated from the 11th to the 16th century. And again, Plutarch's writing late 1st, early 2nd century. Um, now, those are only the Greek manuscripts, you know, so then you're, you're looking at things such as manuscripts in other languages. And it's been estimated about 25,000 manuscripts and all. That that may be true. Wow. Um, some of those manuscripts are later, though, you know, and they're still valuable, but you've probably got mm, 600 manuscripts within the first thousand years. So that's what we have. Even Ehrman himself recognizes that the, the New Testament has no peer when it comes to ancient manuscripts. And he says that despite all the variation, and you know, when you're talking about tens of thousands of manuscripts, you're going to have a lot of variances. And he says, look, you know, he estimates 300 to 400,000 variances uh, within all those manuscripts. But he said, you know, most of them are just a matter of spelling and word order. And he says the same kind of mistakes that his students make. Mm. Um, when it comes to being able to reconstruct what the original said, we can get back to almost a pure text, though not 100%. So, wow. So, I mean, that's Ehrman, and he refers to himself as an agnostic atheist. So, he's he's no friend of Christianity. He, he has no uh, dog in the fight here, and yet he will say that the New Testament, in terms of being able to get back to the originals, um, it has no peer in terms of the confidence that we can have. All right, Mike, I want to go to a uncomfortable place, which is, has there ever been something, a question, an idea that made you doubt your faith, that made you question, that made you go, oof, I'm not sure? One, that, but then two, how did you eventually overcome that? You know, Raj, I'd have to say that it's probably the thing that started my doubts. Um, it would have been the final semester of graduate school for me, which was the fall of 1985. I was finishing up a degree in New Testament studies, a master's degree. Um, I was spending hours a day reading scripture in the original language, um, Greek. Uh, and I was praying probably hour to two hours a day. So I felt like I had this intimate relationship with God. But then one day I just asked myself the question, is this stuff really true? I think I've got this intimacy with God, but what about Muslims who live in Afghanistan? What about Buddhists who, who, who live in 
Japan? Um, what about Hindus who live in India? Do they have these kind of experiences? Um, what if it had been born in one of those countries to a, a, a family of a different religion? Would I be a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist if I'd been born in China? And that just started to really bother me. Um, and so I ended up going uh, to Gary Habermas. He's a philosophy professor, and I'd never met him. But one of my roommates suggested I go see him, and I did. And he invited me, wasn't judging me at all. He invited me to come in, sit down in his office. And he said, look, no problem where you're coming from here. Um, he said, admitted that he had doubted in the past, but he had investigated the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. And that made the difference to him. And he just explained to me some of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And that really helped me. Well, let's say my friend uh, randomly clicked on this video uh, and they're like, okay, Michael Icona, that, that sounds like a trusted voice. I, I, I'm i a skeptic. I, I don't know where I stand, but okay, whatever. Click YouTube. Let's, 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 let's get after this. And my friend's watching this. And full, full, full caveat, first off, I know that you have studied this at nauseum. You've, you've written books. You've, you've, you've gone, you've gone to the dark places to see if this is actually true. Um, but if my friend here is watching this, and you have this microphone, this platform to talk directly to a skeptic, what would you say to them? I'd say keep seeking truth. None of us need to fear truth. Uh, what we need to fear is that our biases, and I'd speak to myself in this way too. What we need to fear is that our biases will get in the way, prevent us from discovering truth and seeing it, and it costs us eternity. Mm. That's the kind of stuff that will occasionally keep me awake at night because I know I have my own biases. I have my own desires. I, I make conscious efforts to try to bracket those because I think truth is, is, is important. I want to know truth. And if Christianity is false, I would want to know it. So with that in mind, um, I'd say major on the majors here. Uh, keep the main thing the main thing, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Uh, I think we'd all agree that if Jesus rose from the dead, it's game, set, match. Christianity's true, period. So even if we couldn't answer some of the things in the Old Testament, even if there's problems with some contradictions in the Gospels, um, even if we had to look at the genocide text in the Old Testament and say, well, those are just religio-political propaganda meant to justify the acts of a brutal Israelite king. If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is still true. And this is something I've devoted years of, of intense investigation to look, uh, investigation, um, look into. And I'm convinced after looking at the data, wrestling with it, being engaged in public debates with some of the, the, the greatest skeptical minds out there, um, I'm convinced more than ever that the evidence points very decisively to the historical event of Jesus being raised from the dead. And that being the case, we can have confidence that Christianity is true. Wow, praise God. Uh, you know, you've, you've talked to me uh, privately about how you, you went to some of those dark places. You, you've, you went beyond your biases. You went beyond your comfort zone to discover that this is... This is true. This is reliable. So I guess to, to, to close out, um, if there is one thing that has helped you, if there is one 
um, thing that you've discovered that's really helped you when you were doubting, when you were when you were wrestling with all this stuff? And you've kind of touched on a lot. And, and again, we, we're going to have to have you back on. But to close out, if there is one thing that that really gives you uh, assurance and peace that this this book is trustworthy, our God is trustworthy, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What would you say to that? Well, I think it's the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. The resurrection of Jesus, because of that, um, I'm confident that Christianity is true. And then I think, okay, well, if Christianity is true, then Jesus of Nazareth would want his message to be uh, preserved, to be carried on to future generations. Well, where is this message, if not in the Gospels and the New Testament literature itself? And then when we start to look at things such as the authorship, um, the ancient church tradition, um, which is unanimous for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and virtually so for John, is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these traditional authors for the Gospels, um, were intimately involved in penning these. Now, I, I think that probably they used secretaries, uh, the academic term would be an amanuensis, um, to do the actual writing for that. I don't think a tax collector or fisherman would have had the literary skills to write them. But, you know, Paul used an amanuensis, a secretary. In fact, it's he's even mentioned in uh, Romans um, chapter, chapter 16 um, that Tertius, he said, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And Romans is the crown jewel of all of Paul's letters. So we can anticipate that Tertius did a whole lot more than just to take dictation. Cicero, uh, one of Rome's greatest statesmen, um, used uh, uh, an amanuensis, a secretary named Tiro. And in fact, when Pompey visited and spent an evening with Cicero, he asked Cicero to read something to him. And he said, no, because without Tiro, I am altogether dumb. So if Cicero and Paul, who were highly educated, um, relied on secretaries, we can expect that a tax collector and a, um, a fisherman, maybe even a physician like Luke, would have done so as well. Um, so I do think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were intimately involved in the penning or composition of these Gospels. Matthew would have been an eyewitness. The Gospel of John, uh, John, whether it was John, the son of Zebedee, or John, a minor apostle, would have been intimately involved in the eyewitness of Jesus. And um, church tradition says that Mark got his information directly from Peter. And Luke says he got his information from the eyewitnesses and those who knew him, knew them. So I think we do have good reason. And I've only given some. There's plenty more I could give reasons why I think we can trust the Gospels, why we can trust the New Testament. I, you know, it just makes sense that that God, if he loves us so much that it results in the incarnation, that he would preserve what he wants us to know with sufficient accuracy. And so I think we have that in our Bible. Amen and amen. Mike, my brother, thank you so much. This show is called Can I Trust the Bible? So I'm going to ask you the name of this show. Mike Lycona, can I trust the Bible? Absolutely.